Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. This is the final episode of this show for 2018, and in it I'll be discussing the late counting and close races of the Victorian state election. I'm joined today by Kevin Bonham. Kevin is a Tasmanian-based cephalologist and a regular guest on the show. Kevin, welcome. Hi, Ben. The last Victorian state election in 2014 produced a relatively clear result on election night. Pretty much only the seat of Pran was still up in the air a couple of days after the election. In contrast, a large number of seats remained in play days after this election, with eight seats decided by less than 1,000 votes compared to only five in 2014. The new Legislative Assembly includes at least 56 Labor MPs, nine more before the election. There are currently 26 Coalition members, although one of those seats is still to be decided. There are also three Greens and three Independents. This is a crossbench of six members, which is the largest crossbench in the Victorian Parliament since the Second World War. Kevin, let's start with Ripon, which I believe is the only lower house race that's yet to be decided. Where is that race up to? Well, this this race has been going uh, backwards and forwards uh, and uh, getting closer and closer. And it's currently in a a full recount, which uh, started yesterday. Uh, before the full recount, the margin was uh, 31 votes in favour of Labor, and information on exactly what's going on in the recount has been difficult to find. But it seems like it's uh, narrowed possibly to a, to a handful of votes, with a lot of votes being argued about. This is an interesting race in a way because while there were big swings in a bunch of seats, Ripon was already a very marginal seat, right? I think it had a 0.8% margin for the Liberal Party before the election. So the swing to Labor was actually really small there, but uh, it was just enough to make it that kind of crucial seat that's the the last one to be decided. Uh, Louis Taylor's done remarkably well to resist the swing to this, to this extent when you see some of the swings that seats have that seats have fallen on seats have been falling on five percent eight percent we've got a seat on less than one percent that that has gone to the wire but with the assistance of um personal vote effects for a new sitting member and uh also uh the the sort of the inner metropolitan seats have been um swingier than the than the rural seats that's a good place to maybe talk about the races between labor and the greens so there were three seats that the greens have won none of them were particularly safe they they won by just over a thousand votes in melbourne which was their probably the safest result but even that was not totally clear in early counting but pran has proven to be very interesting again uh, but the Greens, the Greens ended up pulling off a slightly bigger margin of victory in Pran than than they did at the last election. Last time it was a three corner contest between Labor, Liberal, and the Greens. This time uh, the Liberal vote crashed, so it was just a contest as to uh, who would be second. So the Greens uh, started uh, third on on primaries and were able to pull into second on uh, the preferences from a bunch of micro parties by a few hundred votes. Uh, so it was in that respect, it was a repeat of uh, last time, and we have this very rare, possibly unique situation where the same person has won a seat from uh, third place twice in a row. So on primary votes in Pran, the Greens were about zero point nine percent behind Labor, which was compared to one point one percent the last election. But it was still a a pretty decent gap. That translates to about 354 votes. After the distribution of preferences, they ended up kind of making up about 600 votes, which is a pretty good result. And it does suggest like the Greens are generally more capable of winning in these kind of tight races where minor party preferences are between them and Labor. Labor kind of got stranded in the middle, presumably, because the Liberals were still gaining preferences. So the Greens picked up, particularly from the Animal Justice Party, 
also to a smaller degree from Sustainable Australia and uh, Fiona Patton's Reason Party. Labor's best hope for a big gain was uh, Labor DLP, the Democratic Labor Party, but uh, really too many of the preferences actually uh, went to the Liberals, which uh, didn't help because any preference that went to the Liberals was basically a dead vote in this contest for second place. While the Liberal Party didn't have a chance of winning, they still got the highest primary vote. So they were going to be in the final count. And the, the key count was actually to determine which of the two progressive main candidates, Labor or the Greens, would make it to that final round. So as the distribution of preferences is flowing, the Liberal Party is still picking up preferences, but effectively those preferences are not playing a role in the key the key decision-making for the race. So, I mean, there's a couple of reasons why you'd suspect those DLP votes would go to the Liberals. Like, uh, they, they did come first on the ballot, so presumably some of those DLP votes were donkey votes and the Liberal Party was next. So that, that may well have hurt them. And, you know, the DLP, despite their name, are quite a conservative party. So I suspect um, that was also an element there. Yeah, it's just whoever got into uh, into second was, was going to beat the Liberals by a huge margin. And that was, that was clear from very early on. So... It is unlike last time where there was a, a big contest to see who got into second and then a big contest to see whether whoever got into second would actually beat the Liberals. So there were four other seats that were decided by less than a 1,000 votes, which were Labor versus Coalition seats. They were Bayswater, Hawthorne, Caulfield and Nepean, which was slight, became slightly safer for Labor, but still a very close race. Did you notice any particular trends in terms of which votes were breaking which way that helped decide those races? Noticed in a lot of these seats that there was a very heavy swing on on in election day voting, so that uh, so that on the ABC's projection, uh, Labor was fifty three forty seven or fifty four forty six ahead. So some of these seats seemed to be absolutely gone on election night, and then they came back to very close, and uh, some of them fell and some of them didn't. I guess um, Hawthorne was the big one because Hawthorne was. Uh, a seat that the uh, that the Labor Party has not won since 1952, and only twice got even close to winning since that time. And uh, it is the seat of the Shadow Attorney General John Pesuto, who was a leadership contender, who's been uh, bumped off by uh, John Orman Kennedy, a 71-year-old uh, retired history teacher who once taught, taught Tony Abbott and who has never learned to drive. So he's a high hmm. spirit to me in that regard. Uh, it's, it's an amazing story, um, but the, this is like a big crisis for the Liberals to have lost such a seat. So on election night, we had this trend where Brighton and Sandringham were also in a sort of similar position, but they, they got pulled back a little bit and the Liberal Party held on there. It does seem like maybe there's a little bit of a trend that these inner city, maybe more socially progressive, wealthy Liberal electorates may be a bit alienated from the Liberal Party right now. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think Wentworth and Hawthorne may be the beginning of a bit of a trend that we should definitely be watching at the next election. There was a perception of this, the sort of the middle class heartland was being uh, lost and people were more open to voting uh, Labor in these areas, um, areas that are fairly socially liberal and moderate, turning away from the from the Liberal Party in this election. We also had independents do quite well in rural areas. Susanna Sheed in Shepparton was re-elected after winning th- four years ago, 
but we also had two other independents elected or re-elected and in very close races, and we had an independent come close in Benambra. So what's your takeaway about, about those races and what they say about Victorian politics right now? The major parties are both really um, on the nose in the regions in Victoria. There was quite high voting for other parties in the uh, upper house seats too. So uh, we had a couple of cases. We had this case of um, Mildura where the uh, National Party uh, lost the seat to an independent who some time ago was a Labor candidate, Ali Cupper. Uh, She was running on a, a platform which basically said, the major parties have failed us, <laughs> just quite hard hitting. And we also had Russell North, former Nationals MP, retain his seat as an independent with basically an unchanged swing, despite a very uh, turbulent term personally. The election of all these independents and Greens does mean that while the current Labor government has quite a solid majority, it does suggest that next time there's a really close election, we could see a much better chance of a hung parliament in Victoria, like we're kind of looking at New South Wales right now, because of this kind of expanded crossbench, uh, sort of making the the target for a hung parliament much wider. It's quite a change from uh, two elections ago in Victoria where no crossbenchers were elected at all. I should probably mention the other, the other Labor Greens seats uh, briefly, because they were... Uh, uh, quite interesting. So Brunswick, the Greens picked up the seat because it was a vacancy. Um, Melbourne was surprisingly close, I think. I think a lot has to be looked at as to why that was so close. And you had the other two, which Labor won, Northcote, which was going back to them after a by-election, and uh, Richmond, where there was a lot of uh, controversy about uh, the Greens' candidate because of her uh, conservative policies on uh, sex work. So at the time of recording this podcast, I believe none of the final counts have been conducted for the Victorian upper house. We haven't seen any of the pushing of the button and presumably we'll see that early next week. Uh, We do have the benefit of the ABC's preference distribution calculator, which does give us a sense of who would win if all the preferences were distributed in line with the group voting tickets. But this is far from perfect since about 10% of votes were cast below the line. So we need to be a bit more creative in analysing the count so far, which you've been doing, Kevin, with your analysis on your blog. So I thought maybe we might run through each of the regions. Yeah, I should stress that it's very difficult to analyse these counts with the with the added impact of below the lines as well. Uh, they are really complicated modelling exercises to try to work out what the hell is going to happen. And anything that I say... It's always possible that it might get upended by some scenario that I haven't thought of where someone drops out before I expect them to and it unleashes a a pile of consequences that no one's even looked at. So some of them we won't really know until the buttons are pressed. Let's start with East Metro. Uh, They're the Transport Matters Party who have a very low vote, uh, looking like they're in a good position to win. I think they've got 0.6%, but they've got the perfect preference spiral. The reason why that's so certain, right, is that they start piling votes almost immediately from parties that don't have very many below-the-line votes, so they're pretty solid. And then the gap between them and anyone who could potentially beat them is large enough at almost every stage that there aren't enough below-the-line votes to actually uh, change the result. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. That's the one that I basically haven't seen any life in that one since since very early. It just looks like this this guy's got a dream run and... uh, 
I can't see anything that stops him. Eastern Victoria, the ABC calculator thinks that the Aussie Battler Party is likely to win, but it looks like they will suffer from a lot of the preferences that they are expecting are actually below the line votes that probably won't come to them. So what's your analysis of that, that region? Yeah, they've got a key point where they have to be in front of the Hinch Party and uh, on uh, on current uh, primaries, I'll give them uh, no chance at all of surviving that uh, that cut-off point. Maybe if they lift with late votes, maybe. But I, I think that that seat's going to go on to be uh, won by the Suda's Fishers and Farmers Party, which will mean a uh, no-change result for that electorate. North metro region. Uh, so the Greens, that's the one region where the Greens have held on to their seat. Uh, and there's also two Labor which are pretty clearly elected, and it looks like there's a bit of a race for the last two spots with a hinge candidate, Fiona Patton from Reason, and the interestingly, the number one Liberal kind of competing for the last two spots. This is probably the messiest one, North Metro, the, the hardest one to uh, to model. Um, the Liberals are probably okay. They're, they're just below a quota, but with the assistance of uh, below-the-line leakage and votes exhausting out of the count, they, they should make it. So the... The fight seems to be between um, Fiona Patton and the Hinch Justice Party candidate, Carmela Dugiandis. Patton, she wins if the Greens get over their quota before the Victorian socialists are excluded. If not, then uh, Dugiandis wins instead. So there's this, this key crunch point that's very close because the Greens are hovering at almost exactly a quota. At the moment, I'd say Patton's probably slightly better place, but it's very, very hard to call. North Victoria, it uh, looks like the Hinge Party has a has a good chance of, of winning a seat there. What's your take? Okay, so North Victoria has got this uh, massive uh, uh, micro-party, so-called micro-party vote, led by the Suits Fish and Farmers have got nearly 8%, but they're not actually going to win by the looks of it. It looks like they're going to lose their seat, and it looks like the uh, Liberal Democrats and Hinge Justice Party both have a really good thing going at the moment. The Hinch one was looking a bit shaky earlier on, but at the moment it looks like they're both going to get up. So it looks like there's going to be two micro parties for Northern Victoria. So the shooters, fishers and farmers live by the sword and die by the group voting ticket sword. I think in this particular case, they might be uh, too successful for their own good. They're not, a, not an attractive uh, source to uh, deal with because they've got too many votes. Southeast Metro uh, in that region, it looks like Transport Matters, again, a party that no one had heard of with a, with a chance of getting what would be their second seat, uh, competing with Lib Dems for a final seat. This one, transport matters are not as not as much a sure thing as in uh, East Metro. There's a cutoff point where they're struggling to stay ahead of the Greens, and they're currently ahead of the Greens on the on the calculator. But uh, after you take into account below the line votes, this becomes very dicey. And so their 1.27% might, um, they could lose out to the Liberal Democrats who have actually polled very badly in South East Metro. They've only polled uh, 0.8%, unlike some of the other seats where they've done quite well. Uh, but the Liberal Democrats have a very good preference spiral here. So they, they could just get the, this seat instead of transport matters. This one is very close as well. Let's go to South Metro, a region where the Greens have held a seat there for the last three uh, elections, uh, but it looks like Sustainable Australia um, are looking likely to beat the Greens. Yes, this one is a, a good example of uh, everything that is uh, wrong with preference harvesting, although there are so many things wrong with preference harvesting that it will take them many podcasts to list them all. Um, the Greens are on 
uh, 4%, but they don't pick up preferences. And Sustainable Australia, a similar party, except for their views on, uh, on immigration, have 1.3% uh, and have a very strong preference spiral going. And I haven't been able to find anything that knocks it off. West Metro, the Greens have held a seat there for the last three terms, but it's it's often been a close run thing, holding onto that seat. Uh, looks like the Greens have definitely lost their seat there, and there's a race between a hinge candidate and possibly a shooter for the final seat in that region. The Greens have lost their seat to Labor, and the hinge party candidate, Catherine Cumming, who's a, a local mayor and quite a high-profile candidate, has polled 6.8%, uh, uh, which... Seems like easily enough, but there's a um, there's key exclusion point involving the Liberal Party and the Labor DLP, neither of whom can actually win, but which uh, sets off impacts for uh, for other parties. Uh, that point is quite close, and if things switch at that point, then uh, it's possible that uh, Cumming could lose to the shooters, fishers, and farmers who have only 1.9%, uh, which would be quite a surprise if the shooters got to uh, represent a, a, a metro seat. Uh, when I looked at it last night, I thought that Cumming was still in slightly the better position, but it's, uh, it's another unclear one. And finally, last but definitely not least, Western Victoria. Uh, there was a there was a sitting MP there from the Vote One Local Jobs Party who didn't run again, and it looks like possibly two micro parties might get elected there: Hinch and Animal Justice. Early in the count, it was looking a bit dicey, both both the Hinch candidate and the Animal Justice candidate as to uh, whether they would get up. But uh, as the count has gone on, it's stabilised, and at the moment, it does look like. Uh, uh, both of them are actually winning. Those are the eight regions. So if we just zoom out for a second and look overall, obviously there's a lot of moving pieces there, but the impression I get is Labor is on track to almost win a majority, but probably not quite win a majority, uh, but in such a position that they would have a large range of parties that they could work with uh, in terms of governing. Does that does that seem right to you? Yeah, Labor's, Labor's going to be on, uh, on about 18 seats. Uh, so 21 is a majority. So they're going to have a crossbencher of about 10, which will include one green. Um, so they may be able to pass things with the support of the, uh, the, the Hinge Justice Party alone, or barring that they'll have uh, various other uh, options for getting things through with some combination of these, uh, these little parties. Um, it's going to be a pretty pleasant time for them, I would think. Um, it's not sort of the situation which they may not like so much of having just the Greens in the balance of power. They don't like being held to ransom by the Greens. So uh, this may be one reason why there's not been a great enthusiasm from Labor for uh, changing this electoral system and fixing the problems with it. I was going to ask about that, though, because I do think you do get to a certain point where even the Labor Party says, well, this might have gone too far. And in our last episode, Paddy Manning was saying that he'd spoken to a sort of a prominent Labor figure who said, yeah, no, we're looking at reforming the system, which was interesting and a bit of a surprise. I have wondered a little bit about where those numbers would come from. Uh, so if Labor gets to, say, 18, 
they would need three other votes to pass any kind of reform. And obviously the Greens would be one. I suspect if Fiona Patton got elected in uh, North Metro, she, she even though she she's benefited from the system in the past, clearly she's she's felt um, hard done by in the recent uh, in the recent election in terms of the preference deals. So I do think it's possible there might be a vote there, but that still only gets you to about twenty. Uh, so there isn't really a, there there could be if Labor gets to nineteen just enough for a. Labor plus crossbench majority for voting reform. I suspect if we did see it, we would probably not see it until middle of 2022 in the lead up to the next election when the government's kind of cleared its agenda before the next election. Yeah, or the other possibility is uh, bipartisan reform. Um, the uh, the coalition's been pretty pretty trashed by this result, and I think they, they they've lost a few seats to micro parties here, and they would they would benefit from uh, from reforming this this system. So, but I think really it's all on uh, it's all on Labor as to whether Labor want to uh, want well, to change it yeah. or not. Nothing's getting to the lower house without Labor, even if even if it was possible in the upper house. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Kevin, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And Kevin, uh, where can people find your ongoing analysis of, of this results as we get as we get to the finish line? Okay, all my analysis is up at kevinbonham.blogspot.com.au, Bonham, B-O-N-H-A-M. And uh, you'll have to scroll down a little bit, but pretty soon you'll come to a Victorian post that has a link to the upper house. Yes. So this is the last episode of this podcast for 2018. Uh, there will be some final analysis of the Victorian state election over the coming week. Then I'll be largely going quiet until January 2019, when I'll be returning with analysis of the upcoming New South Wales and federal elections, including new episodes of this podcast. In the meantime, you can also check out each individual seat guide for the federal election and the final seats for the New South Wales election guide, which will be going up over the course of December. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.